everybody, welcome to episode 109 of Literary Disco, Street Gang. Today we head to the most famous, magical, and educational New York City street that does not exist as we discuss Michael Davis's 2008 book, Street Gang, The Complete History of Sesame Street. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me, as always, are novelist and critic Todd Goldberg and essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel. Hey, guys. Hello. Hey. I think you forgot to say the scintillating uh, book, Street Gang, by Mike Davis. Wow. I don't know if I've ever read a book that so completely compelled me to stay awake. (laughs) <laughs> the, wow, we're just jumping game. right in with our criticisms of the book, huh? Uh, no, no, no. No, I, there's, there's a lot to be gained from um, the action-packed thriller Street Gang. <laughs> you I mean, are so look, ridiculous. We, we will get to this book in one, one moment. I just want to say, as a person with not one but two books with the word gang in the title of it, <laughs> <laughs> um, that... I think there's a certain expectation that goes along with it, and it was met. It was a it was a knife fight from page one to page three fifty, and it was the knife fight to keep my fucking eyes open. But anyway, hold wow, on, how are you guys doing? To, to the book. Let's hear let's hear about your trip to Alaska. You just got back, Todd, from a cruise. Oh, Tell right. us all about that. I did. Was it was it everything David Foster yeah. Wallace said in uh, in his essay that we read on this show, or? Was it glorious and actually fun? Well, it was a little bit of both. I mean, I had, a, I had a, an amazing time. So Wendy and I took a cruise from San Francisco to Juneau, Alaska, and then up to Skagway, Alaska, and through the Inside Passage, um, hitting Ketchikan and then Victoria, British Columbia as well. It was 10 days. We, saw, we went to the Mendenhall Glacier. We got to walk on the glacier. We went to Glacier Bay. We saw calving of glaciers. We got to see global warming in its and all of its beauty um, right in front of us. So the all the melting. All the it melting. Was, that part was absolutely amazing. Um, the cruise itself, you know, it was we had a, a nice room, so that was good. Um, and I, I sat on the balcony every day and I read. Um, even though it was absolutely freezing, I wrapped myself up in blankets because I was like, I'm going to sit on this balcony. I'm going to read books. I'm going to see the ocean. And so it was super cool because I was sitting out there reading what ended up being not a great book, uh, Universal Harvester by John Darneal, um, the author of Wolf and White Van, which we all loved. Um, but I, I'd be sitting out there and I'd see orcas, um, you know, swimming as mm. I read, which is really cool. Um, there were some things that I was, um, I was really surprised by um, on the ship. Apparently, cruise ships and then these little port towns are these vast international jewel rackets. So, <laughs> on on this cruise ship that I was on, there was a section of the boat that is just like a shopping mall. So, I was on the Grand Princess, which is this huge 5,000-person boat, I guess. Um, something near there. Because there was 3,000 passengers and 1,500 um, crewmen. Um but so there's this whole section of the boat that's just like a, a shopping mall filled with high-end jewelry and watches and things like that. And then you get into these port towns and right in the port in Juneau and Skagway and Ketchikan, which are these tiny little Alaskan cities. Um, and in the case of Skagway, it's, it's you know, it's, it's just the, the gateway to the Yukon. So we got to Skagway and we took a train into the Yukon, which was amazing. Um, but... 
like for the first like three blocks around these ports it's just like these tourist shops selling gold and diamonds and watches and something called tanzanite which i have no idea what it is but like the on the on the onboard tv stations and the the hucksters that sell stuff on the on the ship it was all about deals on tanzanite and then you know when you get to town go to this shop and mention this word and you get 20 percent off tanzanite and i was like this is just like a fucking racket to sell jewelry to these people who think they're getting some deal because they're in some town in alaska but it's just these corporate you know these corporations selling gold and diamonds to you but then i found out um, that apparently, are, are you shocked by the, the fact that a mega cruise corporation was trying to sell no. you on stuff? Yeah, what? No, I'm not. I'm not surprised by that. But what I was surprised by is I that I thought I was getting on a fishing the, boat. I, is that the cruise companies bought all of the um, like the first couple blocks around each of these um, port oh, cities so just and all put the all money. these shops oh. in there? Yeah, so they just they just fill these these tiny little towns with all these shops that they own under this strange auspice of oh you're going there you're getting this fantastic deal when they own the companies that are in there and they own the companies that are on the boat and so that was that was really gross to me um and so i sort of had to divorce my mind from that and just enjoy what was the amazing thing which was alaska which was one of the most beautiful places i've ever seen in my entire life um taking a helicopter to the mendenhall glacier landing on a river of ice and then hiking around for an hour. That was amazing. Yeah. I mean, like to, to, to walk on history um, was amazing. The, the, the amazing thing also is that Wendy is extraordinarily scared of flying. And yet she booked us this excursion where we flew a helicopter onto a river of I'm ice. I'm scared of helicopters, man. <laughs> I've, I've only been in a helicopter yeah. a few times. And every time I'm like, I can't relax. It's, it's a, such a strange way to fly i just don't yeah i so i was scared to death but i didn't want to look scared because if i was scared then wendy would be super scared and then we wouldn't get to do this so like we we pile into this um this helicopter and the guy flying the helicopter is just like this broy like 25 year old dude i'm like oh my god this we're gonna fucking die and like i'm my outward face is like, yeah, this is great. It's perfectly safe. Everything's fine, honey. This is going to be fantastic. My inside is like, oh, my God, I've never been so scared in my entire life. I'm going to plunge to my death in this helicopter. It's everything you say it was makes amazing. me want to do it. It, it, it was amazing. <laughs> and um, I, after we got up there and landed, I was perfectly fine on the way back. But the way there, like you're sweeping over mountains. It was it was amazing. Um and then just to be able to go out into the Yukon and go into these like you know dead cities, these dead gold mining cities, and walk around a little bit and see the sights. All that was it was all. So wonderful. you didn't read any Alaska-based stuff while you were there. Um, I read a guidebook to the port cities <laughs> we'd be visiting. <laughs> I read I read a bunch of books though. Wow. But here's the coolest thing. Well, not the coolest thing, but a cool thing. So I'm a huge. Robertson Davies fan. I think I've mentioned um, his book Fifth Business before on the show. And in fact, um, when we were talking about Canadian books recently, um, when we were talking about Three Day Road, some folks on Twitter had suggested Robertson Davies. And I said, oh, he's, he's one of my favorites. We, um, we were in Juneau and we got off the beaten path and I found this tiny little used bookstore in Juneau. And so, you know, I'm 
I'm always looking for a bookstore. And so we wander into this tiny little used bookstore. There's an old black dog on the floor. There's like three people wandering around in there. And I'm just like, oh, this is a great little bookstore. This is like, this is home. And they have just this tiny little window of rare books. And I was like, well, what is this? So I'm looking at the rare books. And it's, you know, it's like stuff about Alaska. I was like, I don't know what any of these books are. And then all of a sudden I see a signed Robertson Davies book. And Robertson Davies has been dead uh, for a long time. And I'm like, oh my God, that this is a signed Robertson Davies book. What? This is crazy. This is going to be like $500. And I'm like, how much is this? Robertson Davies book and they're like oh it's 45 bucks and I was like oh, take all of my money please take all of my money and so I got this beautiful first edition signed Robertson Davies book in a tiny little um used bookstore in Juneau Alaska and it just it made me feel amazing like here's here's a hero of mine in this place I've never visited and all of a sudden I can I can can touch where he wrote his name um so that was really cool um had some great crab we had a lot of crab had a lot of salmon um mm. watched a lot of movies on the in-house uh movie station saw edge of 17 good movie right yeah yeah oh and and interestingly about about edge of 17 is that it is made by our friend celeste freeman's niece cool yeah which I did not know. I didn't know that. I didn't know that either. And then I... Ryder looks stunned. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, I'm, I'm... You're like... No, sorry. What? I was actually doing something what? else on my computer at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Not listening to my story. Anyway, I had a great time in Alaska. It was an amazing trip. And to be sort of unplugged for two weeks, basically, was uh, fantastic. I really enjoyed it. That's amazing. I can't believe you saw wild orcas. They're on my whale bucket list, which is a specific kind of bucket list that I have. Can I can I say one thing though about these whale things? So like we didn't go on a whale excursion, um, and then we saw one, and I found I found the whale excursion really disconcerting. So basically, like they figure out where the pods are, and then in order to see the whales breach, they chase them. And I was like, oh my god, these. Boats just chasing these whales and making them come up out of the water so you can see them. I found that. No, they don't force them out of the water. But they're they're chasing them. They're following them as they move Uh, quickly. Um, Unless, I don't know what the heck kind of boat you are Well, this is just what I saw. So I don't know. I don't know if what I saw is different than what actually happens. But, like, there were four boats in one area. And then all of a sudden some, um, some whales showed up. And they all, like, turned on their engines and jetted towards them. And then ran after them well whales wouldn't they wouldn't jump out of the water to escape a boat they would dive mm. they can stay under for a long time right <laughs> you should have gone on that whale excursion you would have learned a lot about whales <laughs> we did uh we did more glacier stuff i was more interested in seeing the nature stuff but let me just tell, say one other thing and i don't know if either of you have ever been there but victoria british columbia what a beautiful city now that's a place I want to spend some more time. Absolutely gorgeous. Cool. Either of you been there? I've no. never been there. Looks absolutely beautiful. No, there's like no. so much of Canada I have to really explore. I've really only been to Vancouver and Montreal and Toronto. And like I love all three of those places, but there's so much more. There's I'm so saving my see. Canada excursions for when I permanently flee the country. 
Oh, that'll be nice. Yeah, the, I'll have a place to stay. You good. mean when we're we're speaking Russian here? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know, guys. Today was a pretty good day in America. We found out uh, that our president's son, in fact, was having some covert meetings with surprise, Russia. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> It's just oh also God. seedy. That's what's. It's getting really, really seedy and gross. I, I don't know. It's it's less seedy to be just pathetic. Like it's just it's yeah, morally bankrupt. All right, we don't need to get into politics. Um, instead, let's talk about Muppets. Yay! Yeah. <laughs> Not political at all. Not at all. No. Actually, very political. Well, very political. Yeah. I was being sarcastic. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So. Um, uh, Michael Davis wrote this book called Street Gang, um, and it purports to be the complete history of Sesame Street, and it is very detailed and very long. Very, um, very. <laughs> and, uh, I, you know, I suggested that we uh, read this book mostly because I've become obsessed with Sesame Street now that I have a two-and-a-half-year-old, and we were able to, you know, we, we held off any screen time until he was two, and then we took a trip uh, in an airplane and decided it was right before we turned to. We we're like, all right, well, we're going to start letting them watch stuff. And what we started letting them watch was Sesame Street, um, mostly because when I was a kid, that's all I was allowed to watch really until the age of like eight. I only watched Sesame Street. Um, and he loves it. He loves Sesame Street. And um, I was just fascinated by it because, you know, we get it. We now Sesame Street is owned by HBO. And so all our access to Sesame Street is through HBO and they have it, uh, they have like a classic section and then it gets, and then it goes through the different years. But the classics is what I really liked because that covers from 1978-ish, I think is the earliest episode on there. And then it goes through the 80s and the 90s and it was fascinating to see how the show had changed so much. Um, segments getting shorter and until now like and different characters like Elmo being introduced and, and just watching how the show changed and watching how my son's reaction to the show changing um it, it's uh I mean I have like my own taste about what, what I like and dislike but overall the feeling was Sesame Street is the greatest thing that's ever been made for kids and uh so I heard about this book and I thought it would be a good one for us to read and and talk about uh Turns out the book is, I think, way less interesting than the show Sesame Street itself. But I thought there were still some really cool little factoids and and things we can talk about. Uh, what do you guys think? You yeah. know, I feel like if you've never sat down with the HR coordinator at your company and talked about the hiring practices of where you work, you are so you, you've mean. not yet lived through the first 185 pages of Street Gang. <laughs> A protracted look at how each person got hired, their full resume. And everything I have a, I have a positive spin on that though, um, and maybe I could, well I'll just jump into it then. I mean I I I think that that what this book is trying to do more than anything is prove the value of what otherwise is a very bureaucratic, difficult way to produce television. You know, like. I mean, this mm. is this because like what you're arguing, like, I mean, part of what you're saying is like it's boring. It involves so many people. It involves coordination and lots of meetings and lots of research. And that was exactly the argument against Sesame Street. That is still the argument to this day about defunding Sesame Street. And I think that um, it was nice to read about this sort of decentralized process and how mm. everybody, you know, like, I mean, I guess what I, what I expected when I opened this book was to be like, oh, this is going to be a Warship Jim Henson book. And I actually found that Jim Henson fades very quickly 
into you know and, and it becomes much more a, yeah. a, a a group effort by so many like-minded people and what I came away with was like oh my god this was like this generational sort of um, intellectual movement that resulted in an entertaining and incredibly influential educational kids TV show and and yeah it's, it's a little boring but isn't that kind of the point is, is that the reason we got the show Sesame Street is because these people were willing to go through such a long development process and such a, an inclusive process and involve so many different voices and, and not just think in terms of the bottom line yeah I agree with both of you I mean I think it's not that this is full of facts and the process that is what slows it down, Todd. I think for me, what really slows it down is this. Uh, Michael Davis is so into Sesame Street <laughs> that every single anecdote ends in like, little did they know they were one step closer right, to right. Sesame Street. And I was like, okay, okay. <laughs> and the introduction of every person literally begins with their birth. Yeah. Like, I know. And we, then the end of the book that. is just everybody's but, death. Uh, it's like for the last 30 yeah. pages, you're yeah. just like, and then he got cancer and then he got ALS and then she died. And you're like, Oh my God. It's just, yeah. Sorry. Go on. But I do think, I do think, yeah, no, I mean, I agree. I, I think that there's a lot of like, it's, it's both very facty and very dramatic um, in that way. But I mean, embedded in there are so many interesting mm -hmm. stories that I think they could have like been thrown into sharper relief. I mean, to me, this is, and this is so different than the two of your experiences. And we've had this discussion before. This is such an industry book. Like I do not care as an East coast, <laughs> like consumer of TV, I truly don't care about these various like funders and producers and blah, 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 blah. Like it is, it is really about the making of television. Then it's more about that than it, it doesn't really focus that much on the educational, like how the research was made, how they proved that until pretty deep into this thing. You know, it's, it's more about how like the TV sausage got made and each individual puppeteer, which of course is like very very interesting because they're all like weirdo genius right. yeah and i think um, that like, like the creative stuff is the stuff i find most interesting the how the sausage is made mm -hmm. of actually getting the tv show onto tv with you know all the various production companies and the history and all that stuff that stuff made me want to kill myself like and also because we're talking about 1950s tv shows like kukla fran and ollie and shit and i was like i the, the, my level of interest in Kukla, Fran, and Ollie is so minimal as to make me want to kill myself reading about it. But that being said, I I gravitate to the the personal relationships between these people and and how they would then manifest themselves later on. And so, like when you find out that two writers on the Captain Kangaroo show, <laughs> you know, basically got drunk at a dinner and got themselves kicked off the show, and they ended up you know, moving on to Sesame Street and creating something even larger, and you find out that Captain Kangaroo is a bit of a fucking asshole, and all these things. Like, that stuff I find really Yeah, and this, really this book could have used more of that, definitely. Yeah. Like, the, the personal stories about the creative relationships, I can read or watch or listen to anything about people creating something. Like, I, I spent... Last night, I watched all four episodes of uh, The Defiant Ones on HBO, the, um, the documentary about Jimmy Iovine and Dr. Dre and the evolution of both of their lives to where they ended up creating Dre Beats 
and selling it to Apple for $3.2 billion. It's a, a fairly fascinating four-part documentary. And as we said, actually, before the show started, this, this would have been even better. This book would have been even better as a talking, uh, visually encapsulated full documentary where you can see everything happening versus literally reading about where everyone was born, where they went to school, who their sister was, who their brother was, what their parents were like. I mean, it's just, it, you could have cut 300 pages out of this book by just losing wh where people studied in high school. Yeah. I mean, there's literally sections about what people were doing in high school. I know. I kept waiting for some of that stuff to pay off, well, but I, I think Michael Davis got a little too... He just went down the rabbit hole of research a little too yeah. and didn't have a good enough editor to say, let's trim some of this fat. Well, and then the other thing is, and I mean, this is the challenge of writing about any very unique piece of culture is, you know, how, why would you read this instead of watch Sesame Street? Like the magic is encapsulated in the mm -hmm. show. Um, and I don't even love Sesame Street or I haven't oh, you will. watched it in Oh, you 30 will. years. Yeah, I know. Two years from now, you're going to be um, back on this show being like, ah, why did yeah. I appreciate it? Well, we'll just take, I, I, it's yeah. not that I don't like it. Um, I was just more of a Mr. Rogers kind yeah. of girl. Uh, Mr. So. I found Mr. Rogers creepy from the jump as a kid. I always yeah. thought Mr. Mr. Rogers was creepy. wonderful too. He's the best. But Sesame Street is, um, oh, sorry, go on. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's okay. I just think, you know, it just, like, made me have this craving to watch clips of it and YouTube of it. And, like, particularly Big Bird is so... I mean, I went through, like, an ironic Elmo phase when I was in middle school. That was, like, a thing at the time. Um, but Big Bird is, like, so lame in, as when you think of it as a teen or an adult. But now I'm, like, oh, this gentle giant bird. Like, I can't mm -hmm. get enough. So I wanted to to go back and just experience it. And I think that's the challenge of writing about like puppets and music and acting and everything. Um, that just, it's almost impossible to encapsulate in a completist nonfiction research-based right. work. Though the, right. the book's discussion of Big Bird and the guy who portrays Big Bird, and then in fact, uh, the moment where they talk about death, uh, one of the characters, um, the real life mm -hmm. character dies and they go through this episode where Big Bird, Mr. Hooper, Mr. Hooper where, where Big Bird, you know, experiences death for the first time. That was really compelling stuff because the, the guy who's inside Big Bird um, is notoriously, like, never knows his lines, um, has never learned his lines, and always just does them fresh, but this <laughs> shows up shows late. Up late. Yeah. It's just sort of irresponsible. Um, and this was the one episode where he actually, you know, came in and, and prepared and all this stuff, like... That sort of palace intrigue stuff I found extraordinarily compelling. And, you know, it's like saying, oh, I, I wish I had read a different book, you know. Um, mm -hmm. And that's not Mike Davis's fault. But I think it, it does sort of call into question, like, when, we, when, we, when you look at a book called, you know, The Complete History of X, well, in fact, this is The Complete History of, of X. It, it yeah. goes through every single thing that I wanted it to be all of the writer's room squabbles that I wanted to be all exactly. of the, the personal fights. A fun history yeah. of X. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A, a breezy I mean, but, then, but narratively constructed right. history of Sesame <laughs> right. Street would have been pretty great. Right. <laughs> that stuff is in here. I mean, like, the opening section about, I mean, Jim Henson's very famous funeral contained uh, a lot of really interesting, you know, information that I had never heard about how he 
went to battle with Disney and a lot of his closest acquaintance thought that Disney is what drove him to his grave, Um, which is just fascinating. He died of strep throat and essentially what a horrible horrible Uh, stupid way to die my god i I, and i don't think i knew that that he died of strep throat like that's yeah me neither um and then another thing is like you know and it's embedded in here and we alluded to this right when we started talking about the book is the political Mm -hmm. element you know saying like all right we want these to be for kids of different races we want it to be about kids we're going to aim at kids who maybe aren't getting this information at school or from their parents we're just going to this is going to be truly for the masses of children. Um, but it just gets, it gets buried. It gets buried in everything else. Yeah. I mean, um, I, in fact, Todd, I was going to point out that what was most interesting to me about the part where they were, they're talking about big bird dealing with Mr. Hooper's death mm-hmm. was of course, obviously because the actor died. So they, they made this really brave decision to actually kill the character right. rather than just sort of, you know, avoid the, the issue. But they also talk about how their process started with them bringing in academics, like bringing mm-hmm. in psychologists and psych psychiatrists and having them all sort of, what they call it, they they have a, a term for it where it's like they basically bring all these people in, let all the writers absorb their research on right. how to like how children they have like a, a, a like a seminar basically where they um, that all these different thinkers in the fields of uh, developmental psychology would present how to deal with or how to present um, death to children or what's a, the most you know the right. healthiest way and then let the writers go and do their cre- I mean I thought that, that was, was awesome. fascinating having, yeah. Having been on the in the side, you know, I mean, having been in tele- children's television in particular for a huge part of my life, like that—that's what I've always wanted, <laughs> you know. Like that's the part, like when you're in creative discussion. I mean, in fact, we did an episode of Girl Meets World that dealt with a character's death, and it was, you know, it's really interesting. Like when, you know, in our case, we just had one writer insisting that this was the right way to deal with it and talk about it, and then you had you know, questions of, well, do you mention God? Do you mention, well, whose choice? And then you had Disney executives and, you know, on the Disney side of things, they do market research, market research. They, they Mm -hmm. do, you know, they have all the time, constantly for every single one of their shows. They have constant like, uh, uh, teams all around the country, grabbing children and parents and having them watch shows so they can figure out how to get the highest ratings and sell products. Um, or just to get feedback on the show, but they never, I, I mean, as far as I know, they don't really refer to academics or, you know, scholars in any way. And that's, I mean, so much of this book was like, just sort of, you know, like uh, what, what you, what a liberal would, would, would really want from <laughs> how, how they really right. want Sesame street to be made. Do you know what I mean? Like it's such good, it's so clearly a generation of intellectuals, New York intellectuals who were, like steeped in the civil rights era and coming and trying to figure out the best way to approach the medium of television, like in a positive, productive way and to not commercialize. And like, that just made me so happy because that's, that's non-existent. It's not even mm-hmm. existent in Sesame Street anymore. Now right. it's owned by HBO and the episodes are half an hour long and it's like, it doesn't feel the same anymore and I can't stand it. But um, like reading this book just made me like, oh, it just made me long for the kind of institutional support or I don't know, the courage of individuals to do this kind of thing. Like who's doing this anymore? Ah, oh. well, and I think that the, the sort of academic rigor that was behind it is a fascinating thing that I, I don't think, and I could be wrong. I have no idea. Actually. I, I don't know how much academic rigor exists in children's programming today, but when early on in the book, I think it's, you know, it's like the eighth or ninth chapter or something they talk about, 
sending all the writer producers to this, um, you know, this uh, seminar where there's, you know, all these academics talking about how kids learn and everything. And one of the producers sits himself next to uh, Maurice Sendek, who wrote um, Where the Wild Things Are. Um, and, you know, it's this horribly long, you know, boring thing. And But what he does is, you know, he looks over his shoulder at, at the drawings that Sendek is doing of like a little kid getting more and more enraged and eventually pissing on everything. Um, but... <laughs> They end up, you know, actually then gleaning information about um, how to teach and all the stuff and, and using it to um, using it in actual Sesame Street episodes. And like that was fascinating to me. And, but I, I then wonder, OK, what writer's room in Burbank is going to send their 15, 27 year old uh, screenwriters in L.A. to an academic conference no. for five days to learn about how to teach? Never. It's never going to happen. And no one would do never. it. No one. Would, no writer would do mm. it. No. Hmm. Well, I think there are writers who would do it. It would just be a change of the entire industry. <laughs> I mean, if they just have to turn the industry over, those shake those writers people out wouldn't and put do new it. Ones in. Right. But the conversation <laughs> is just never. It's it's never that explicit. You know, the conversation is always like, okay, are we appropriate? Like, especially at Disney, the conversation is always. Are are we uh, are we safe enough that we're not going to get letters from angry parents? Like right. that's really the biggest uh-huh. goal. Do you know what I mean? Like they and and that's not to say that they don't want their shows to be educational or positive, like you know, de- positive developmentally. Of course they do, but that's just not the concern. Like that's not the number one concern. You know, like the number one concern is to be entertaining, to keep kids coming back, and to be palatable to parents. So no parents are going to be offended or upset. You're not pushing any sort of agenda, whereas Sesame Street clearly has an right. agenda of education. And and they figured out how to do that so well. I mean, my son knows all of his letters. He knew all of his letters by two, like, by well, two and a quarter. And how horrifying. You know, we, and, and numbers. How you know, horrifying is it, though, that, you know, this thing that was was designed sort of as a purely educational experience like to actually help kids and improve kids ability to learn um, because of deficiencies these people are seeing across the country in education is now so politicized that the mere idea of sesame street providing any sort of education for your child without your consent or anything like that it's you know it's literally the divide between liberal and conservative ideals in education where we're going to keep the government out of anything, even if the government is part of public broadcasting. Um, right. You know, it's it's frightening well, to me in a way because there, there's so much good that was being done. But then even in 1969, 1970, as Davis elucidates, already there was that push and pull between academics and religious folks and everyone about what were they teaching and, and don't you teach my child and all this other stuff. Um well, I think, you know, there's I have a couple of thoughts like I mean, one is just to respond to what Ryder was saying. It is very sad to me as someone whose lifestyle is funded by Lego. <laughs> uh, how how much uh, like I think every children's company that I've ever heard of does that's very big um, does not realize the power that they have to shape the future there, you know, all this market research and like culture of testing and market research, it creates a company based on responding to people yep. rather than mm-hmm. leading. Yes. Yeah. And it's, it's really fascinating with Lego cause Lego is great, but they also really shy away from that as well. So that's, it's really, really interesting. Um, but I also think like 
everything you guys are saying I agree with, but like what this book is missing is a critical mm-hmm. eye. You know, like why why should like is Sesame Street the best thing that's ever been made for kids? I it feels like it from this book and maybe some personal experiences, but I also know there's a lot of criticism on like how it's shaped various attention spans and mm-hmm. blah 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 that I don't really know a lot about that I would have been very interested to to learn. I mean like showing us both sides of the coin. So I mean I do not think that people should be like, I want to teach, I want to be the only, my children's only source of right. information and education. I think that's very dangerous and wrong. But on the other hand, you know, there's room to be critical of any piece of media that's kind of taken on a life mm-hmm. of its own, that if we're talking about how kids learn, is a conversation we should always be having. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think, you know, the there's a natural evolution to things as well. And of course this pure ideal thing that was created in 1969 or whatever it was, of course it's going to be turned into a commercial, um, you know, toy machine at some point in our lives. You know, it, it nothing nothing gold stays, I, someone said once, um, or something. Nothing gold yeah. can but stay. But at least they were aware of right. that. Do you know what I mean? Like at the, the outset of this show, they knew that they were if they were a hit, they were going to have to license to products, and they were very responsible about what they were licensing for. And, and um, you know, in fact, like one of the more interesting sections is is this giant practical joke that they play on Joan Cooley, who's one of the um, she's the the main executive director of the Children's Television Workshop, and actually more of the focus of this book than than Jim Henson. Mm-hmm. Um, and because she, she's the one that really spearheaded the entire project, including the original initial research. Um, but so she, uh, they play a joke on her where they pretend that Cookie Monster has been licensed to some <laughs> sausage like making factory in, in Long Island or whatever. And they kept it going for a month, like culminating in like fake products being sent to her desk and 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 the uh, a, um, a band <laughs> jumping into her, you know, playing like some jingle with Cookie Monster. Uh, and she was mortified, you know, because that was always their worst nightmares, that they would be completely commercialized to an unrecognized, you know. And on the flip side of that, you have the George Lucases and Walt Disneys of the world, which is just licensed to everything. Right. Who cares? You know, if it's sugary, if it's whatever, like, there's no, uh, it doesn't matter. Like, they're, they're I, or I guess even the most extreme is probably um, uh, Peanuts, right? Like... Uh, all, they're they're just used for selling life insurance and like it's so weird like you, you, these kids characters being marketed in any context and like you know we have this free market ideal that we still maintain in America and you know I I really do think that there's there's a lot of value in this group I mean I who knows if if Disney or HBO or whoever's in control of this now because I don't think the Henson Company is in control of the Muppet care of uh, the Sesame Street characters anymore. Like how they're managing this still ethically, um, but the fact that there was an ethical stance at one point mm. that there was at least this ideal to counteract the free market to say, okay, we have another responsibility besides just getting as many eyes and as much money in our pocket, as many eyes on our screen and as many as much money in our pocket. We have a responsibility like. I just don't know who else is doing that besides PBS. Um, and mm. that's, you know, that's a great argument for why you should have some government-funded 
uh, entertainment, mm-hmm. um, government-funded art, art, uh, you know, art endowments and whatnot. Like it's it's way too important because otherwise, like you're saying, Julia, it's always responding to a marketplace mm-hmm. and then feeding that marketplace, and it becomes this echo chamber of ideas and attention spans and like. I can't tell you how disappointed I am with the latest Sesame Street episodes because they they've cut them in half. They're a half hour long, and like when you watch the 1970s or the early 80s episodes of Sesame Street, they are weird. <laughs> they are weird, and they are quiet. There are like whole segments in silence, mm. and there's like all these weird animation segments that are like totally psychedelic and abstract and just sort of like meandering um but they'll always come back to a number or something and like watching my son's eyes like just glued to the screen when there's silence and when there's not somebody like screaming or bouncing and jumping and sure enough like as we've gone through the years of sesame street of the available episodes he's gotten more into the shorter segments he's gotten into elmo he's gone through, and it's like ugh. and they're just now everything is computer animation right. like they're all like even bert and ernie segments are computer oh. animated on sesame so street they're not now. puppets they have the puppets, but they still they have like a whole Bert and Ernie go on like adventures together in a whole CGI animated sequence. Then there's there's a show with there's two shows within the show now. There's the Fairy School, Flying Fairy School, which is a whole CGI sequence of um, the fa- the the what's the fairy character name? They talk about the end of this book. Um, it's not Zoe. It's the other. Uh, main female character. Anyway, she's a fairy, and then she's got her two fairy friends, or a troll friend and a fairy guy friend, and they they're in school, and it's like this whole like mini show. And then Elmo has his own show mm-hmm. at you know where it's Elmo's world, and it's couldn't be more obnoxious. It's this and it's like loud, and you know, of course, my son loves it because it's catering to his you know attention span, and you know, it's still better than I think what is mostly available out there outside of public television or or it used to be public television. Um, but anyway, I'm you know, now at this You point, know what's weird, though? Yeah. Just uh, completely off the actual Sesame Street thing, is that, well, two things. How young these people were when they created this stuff and how amazingly, uh, like, bold they were with their decision-making when they were 25 and 30 years old to create this stuff. But also, puppets are weird. <laughs> Deep Pu- thoughts. Puppets are puppets yeah. are awesome. Puppets are awesome, but puppets are puppets, puppets are, are amazing. weird. Like I, I, there's a whole little bit in here where there's this one guy who's like it had to be the right hand for eight years, and right hand is um, is a slang term essentially that they use for like the non dominant feature of the puppet. Um, and this guy just ran the right hand for eight years and was was salty about it. Um, but like. As a kid, I loved all the shows with puppets in them because they felt like living creatures to me in a way yeah. that cartoons never have. And, like, I always thought puppets would come alive. Like, I would have puppets and I'd stick my hand in it and I'd expect it to do something. But, you know, you're like, oh, it's just my hand in there. It's not going to talk to me. But that's what, but that's what I was going to say. It ta- like, it... It's puppets are not weird when you see the way a kid. Oh no! With them. Like, it's amazing. Like it watching makes a lot my of sense. son is obsessed with puppets. Like outside of Sesame Street, he he has the biggest collection of puppets, and he likes weird ones. Like we were in the bookstore, and there was this scary looking dragon puppet, like weird, like with horns and a tongue mm-hmm. and a. Fo- it was like I thought he would be terrified of it. Turns out kids aren't scared of anything, like unless they're told <laughs> to be scared of it. Like he picks up bugs and like you know doesn't care, wants to lick them, like. 
it's he has no problem with anything. He's not grossed out or weirded out by anything. And this dragon puppet, he loved it so much, and we had to get it. He was like carrying it around the store, and he puts his hand in it. And he loved, and he named it Strawberry, <laughs> and like he's just upset, you know. And like now he's giving all the puppets like voices, and he's doing all the, and it's like he, it's it's a thing, you know. And I'm not even really doing it. Like when I pick up a puppet and do it, he's not that. It. He wants to be the one doing right. it. I think that's all part of it, right? It's that yeah. like they can imagine themselves going into the puppet once they realize that that's a process yeah. and it becomes it's it's magical they, they love them so well much. yeah it's them and it's not them right. and that just reminds me of another like very quick you know piece of information that i didn't know about uh jim henson was he wanted to be a theater design major but he didn't want to take certain classes so instead he was a home right. major <laughs> and he got all this experience with like textiles right. and things like that and you know, like, why did Kermit make it through when all these, like, wooden or more human puppets didn't? It's because Kermit's face can do right. subtlety, you know? And talking about that, it's so fascinating. Yeah, Kermit has, like, expressions that can't even be described with words, you know? He's just so soft and malleable. And so, it I don't know, it makes total sense. I love puppets, too. There's an amazing uh, puppetry program. I think one of the best in the country here at UConn. And so we're starting to do puppet shows in our theater, and I'm, like, so into it. I just keep going back to the the, uh, the school and being like, send me all your thesis students <laughs> um, because it's so cool. I mean, these are puppet shows right. for adults. Some of them are scary. Some of them are allegorical. It's whatever, also my favorite part of forgetting Sarah Marshall is all the puppet stuff. <laughs> Do you guys know that movie? And it's, in fact, what's his name? The guy that's in Forgetting Sarah Marshall was Seagull. Yeah, Seagull. isn't he like the like he's the keeper? He's the he keeper of the Muppet movies now, uh, um, right. which yeah. is pretty cool. I mean, I, I think the passion that Mike Davis shows for the Muppets themselves in in the book and his his willingness to go deep into the other people, I think, is really admirable. Because when I think Muppets, I think one thing, and that's Jim Henson. And then to find out that, of course, there's all these other creative people that, you know, were responsible for it as well. The, the woman who is the focal point of the book, I'd never heard of her before in my entire life. I know. Cooney is amazing. She's a hero. Yeah. Just fall in love with her through the course of this book because she really was underqualified for every job she yeah, ever had. She just <laughs> fake she kept it. sort yeah. of bluffing her way into these positions. And um, fascinating. Yeah. Fascinating. Well, and that's another thing is like, it's so funny because we're complaining about all the detail, but we like all the individual stories. But like teased <laughs> out, you know, this is an extremely feminist story. Oh, God, you know, yeah, absolutely. Where absolutely. Her, her husband is like, do not accept the number two position. Do not do it, you know. And this idea of like women being, you know, taken for granted or thought of as underqualified when you have some like Frank Oz is like 19 years old, right. you know, and they're like, hmm, I don't know. You're 35 and have only worked five other jobs. I don't know if you're qualified <laughs> uh, is, you know, ridiculous. So there's some really there's cool stuff in there on that level, too. I mean, thank God she made it through. Yeah. It's nice. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the book it, really it would... details this this, you know, this marriage between her business savvy as she figured it out, stumbled into it and became this like giant of this organizes nonprofit and then the 
the wackiness of these creatives, you know, and 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 they're all sort of showbiz hacks. That's what I love too. It's like mm-hmm. John Stone and Jim Henson and Frank Oz. They're like basically doing like bad vaudeville and like really like <laughs> stupid like it's like base like humor. But I love that stuff, you know, because that stuff always works, especially when you're dealing with puppets or like kids kids comedy. And and you know, it's 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 really it's it's Cooney and you know people on her side of things pushing for the research and the education and then their sort of like hack entertainment skills coming together and like working in this wonderful way like I loved reading about the invention of of Cookie Monster I thought Mm -hmm. because it it came out of basically improving one scene Uh, you know it was like a bad game show host thing and they had this one really googly-eyed stupid character and they decided to make a joke out of the fact that rather than winning the award he would choose a cookie um, over you know a yacht or whatever he was being offered and like <laughs> thus is born you know a legendary character yeah and in in that way again this is like this is saying i wish it had been a different book i as i was reading it i was like i man if this were one of those great oral history books yeah. it would have mm. been it would have been even better because you you could lose a lot of this other stuff that that is in there um, but then it's hard to do an oral history when a lot of the people have died from horrible diseases by the time the book is coming Jeez. out. <laughs> we, well, we, should, we should catalog the horrible diseases that felled uh, every single person that uh, was responsible for the Muppets. Yeah, mm-hmm. my God. It's like anything that came over on the Mayflower eventually killed the Muppets. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, and I think that's what's... it's hard to wrap your mind around you know all these people are dead but sesame street still seems muppets and sesame street characters still seem very very present in our lives you mm-hmm. know so yeah that's that's real depressing todd thanks oh but the, here's the one really cool thing and i i, I wanted to mention this and i forgot is that we have sesame street to thank for buffy the vampire slayer in mm. that joss whedon's dad was one of the original people on Sesame Street. Little is, did he know that he was one step closer that, that might actually, to changing TV history. I, I believe that might be the actual quote. Hold on, I'll look it up. <laughs> it, it's pretty close to that. Uh, Forner worked alongside head writer Tom Whedon, whose son Joss later created, later created television's delectably demonic Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah. Well, that's that's a nice piece of trivia. Yeah, it is a nice piece of trivia. So, did you guys watch the Electric Company when you were growing up? No, I've never seen it actually. No, that's what I love the Electric Company. Like, what is this? Um, but you know, I, I think I watched a lot of the Electric Company when I was a kid because it was focused on reading, and I was so profoundly dyslexic that I ended up needing to watch a lot of the Electric Company to understand mm. how words worked. Um, so I had a real affinity for that. So the, the sections that, that talked a bit about the electric company I thought were interesting. But the, there was that whole period of time where all these shows that it ended up emulating Sesame Street 2 that were sort of geared towards people as they were aging. So the, do you guys remember Zoom? Did you guys have Zoom? Uh-uh. It, I, I remember can, I can still hearing about the, it. The theme, the theme song. Zuma, 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 Zoom. It was a, it was a complicated song then. Wow. Well, we're going deep into Todd's memories, yeah, so I, I think, think we're done here. Stop. The only other thing I want to want to talk about, just point out, is my favorite. One of my favorite song. telling sections of this book is when 
um, Cooney meets Jim Henson for the first time, and she, just by the looks of him, thinks that he is a radical leftist from the Weatherman Underground. Did you guys right. catch that? <laughs> yes. That is insane. Yes. The Weather Underground. The Weather yeah. Underground, yeah. right. Or oh, yeah, the Weatherman, like, right? Are we just safe? The weatherman. Are we safe yeah. is what she feels. And I just loved that because it's like, oh, right, right. That's what was happening in our country at the time. This is in the late 60s. And here she is meeting her, you know, basic like the 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 brain, the heart of her show, um, you know, the creative heart of the show. And she, her her first assumption is that he's like this scruffy leftist who's going to blow them all up. Um, <laughs> I think that just speaks volumes about where we are at culturally and why Sesame Street was so successful is that it was taking liberal values, um, you know, in in some ways kind of extreme. It, liberal values, not obviously Weatherman size, like radical uh, violence or anything, but ideas of progressive education and and fighting for them on a broad scale and like, you know, and, and enlisting people like Jim Henson and all. I just, I think it's uh, it's a lost, it's, it's something that's lost in our generation and the generations below us because everyone's so focused on making money, it seems like. And that's kind of yeah. the only value that mm. we hold true is like, is it a success? Do you have a lot of money? You know, like the, the idea of doing something for public good uh, on a giant scale, like a television show, I mean, that's unfathomable right now. Yeah, that's true. Who Whoever now makes a TV show and doesn't expect to get rich from it? Nobody. 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 Wow. Well... <sighs> This has been great. I feel well, sad. I guess there. I guess. I guess indie television is people on YouTube, right? But even they're expecting to get you know rich from the advertising on YouTube. I think that you guys are steeped in this world, and I still believe there's a lot of people out there making art for its own sake or for the public good. I think certainly in terms, really of, in terms of documentaries and in terms of like, I believe mm-hmm. that there are individuals, but and on, on an organization on the scale of children's television workshop, like, you know, sure. like uh, that kind of concerted effort that's coordinating this many talented people and people with this kind of back education, like people that are graduating from Harvard and Stanford are now going into tech, right? And what are they right. doing with that tech? Are they... They're all trying, like, the, the model, like, the, the model for being a benevolent, uh, like, uh, artist or, or entrepreneur now is Steve Jobs, which is, or not Steve Jobs, um, sorry, Zuckerberg or Bill Gates, because these are people that made their billions first, and then they give back. Right. right? Not Steve Jobs, mm-hmm. because Steve Jobs did not give anything back and believed, actually, it was anti-any um, charity, so let's just state that for the record asshole um but yeah like you know we, wow. we don't well i think it's horrible like we, we all worship steve jobs like he was this great innovator but he was you know and and he was whatever um but we all say while staring into our macbook pros exactly not yeah not in my house but i think that someone i'm married to disparages steve jobs every day yeah, sure <laughs> But I think it's. But anyway, I think that that's the model, the Bill Gates, uh, you know, Zuckerberg model of like we're we're supposed to like get ours first, like create the huge company and create you know get as much money as possible, and then we can give it back. And like we all believe that that's a bit. Whereas like something like this came out of all these individuals. Essentially, I mean, it begins with a dinner party, um, you know, right. of like New York intellectuals, sort of slightly well connected and friendly getting together and one of them being a psychologist from Harvard saying I want to, what if we could use television for education and then Cooney this woman who at that point was a producer at some local station being like 
I could spearhead this and then they make it happen. And like, you know, like getting different money from this group and Carnegie and Ford and like all like that kind of effort. I don't know if there are people out there fighting those kinds of fights right now. Well, Um, sure. Sure. There are. I mean, there's all these NGOs that are are doing good things, but in in entertainment, I guess is what I'm. I'm, Yeah. That's the thing is, are they doing it in entertainment? No. You know, they're, they're doing it for in apps or they're doing it in, um, they're not doing it for something that's going to appear on your television. Um, well, actually, that's not entirely true, because I know some some folks that are doing things right now. There's a there's a, a producer named Peter Samuelson um, who is is using is using film and TV and documentary specifically for social justice purposes. Um, you know that he's trying to yeah. get storytelling out there so that people in underserved communities or or um, you know specifically orphans in many cases hmm. can tell their stories and, and and get their stories out there in a way that um shed a light on the issues that they're having so i mean that stuff happens yeah. you know and i will also say i mean where i'm seeing and hearing a lot of the fight going down is in representation you know that's a, that's a different model saying like all right i am not your typical rich white male but i'm gonna make it you know i'm gonna sell a show yes a commercially popular show but a show with non-white characters or with gay right. characters or whatever. Right. So I think that's that's where social justice and media are intersecting right now. But just because we haven't seen it doesn't mean people aren't trying. Yeah, I mean, you know? and like, also, I wouldn't want to say that. There, there's, you know, like Participant Media, um, which is a film company in California, is making films and documentaries focused on social justice. Um, so there's there are things out there. I think, you know, we're, we're painting with a pretty wide brush. Well, but I think part but, of the problem is that, you know, not problem, but part of the reality is that the media landscape is so fragmented now. Like back then, you yeah. only had three networks and then you had public right. broadcasting, right? So when you did something like Sesame Street, you were reaching everybody at once, you know, right. or, or a fourth of the options of television right there. Whereas nowadays, yeah, there I'm sure there are individuals and, and smaller organizations, but in terms of like, you know, the major networks or even major cable companies it's i mean i i'm pretty appalled by like the choices that discovery channel makes or animal planet like oh. the kind of misinformation and lack history of scientific channel. rigor yeah. yeah history channel like when they do stuff about aliens living in uh, you know right. ancient, and it's like complete non-science being sold as like educational like that's offensive and that's kind you, of you can't just to make you money you can't have know? You can't have Bigfoot hunters on Animal Planet oh, and then expect that. Animal Planet to provide actual education. <laughs> right. I mean, it's it's just, they're just making entertainment. Yeah. All you right. Know. Well, I think if people are out there and they're listening, then they, you do it, you know? Do it. That's how I always feel. Yeah, we're totally busy, but you guys do it. That'd be great. Um, yeah. yeah. We're I providing a public service. A social justice. <laughs> we're, we're, we're discussing I'm literature for no money. We, and we never I, have commercials, I, guys. We are a commercial-free podcast. We, we are we actually doing it. We're, we're basically the Sesame Street of podcasts. Oh, like oh my God. <laughs> no, we're more like well, the Reading Rainbow of podcasts. Yeah, we need to have Tucker change the intro. Tucker, if you could please announce us at the beginning of each episode as basically the Sesame Street of podcasts, that would be very helpful to us. <laughs> All right, and on that.